welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morning peeps, hope you've had a great week. Now today I'm super excited to bring to you my conversation that I had with a woman I really admire who has been in the nutrition space forever. She has such a wealth of experience with elite top level athletes right down to your everyday person who just wants to be active and optimize their health and well-being through food. Now I'm speaking to Dr. Susan Kleiner and Dr. Kleiner is the owner of High Performance Nutrition, which is a consulting form in Mercer Island in Washington. And she's currently the High Performance Nutrition Consultant to the Seattle Storm. She's also consulted with many professional teams and team members, including the Seattle Rain, Seattle Seahawks, Seattle Marinas, Seattle Thunderbirds, and the Seattle Supersonics. Dr. Kleiner is also the author of eight books, including the bestseller, The New Power Eating, The Good Mood Diet, and The Power Food Nutrition Plan. And today, Susan and I have a really in-depth conversation about what it was like to be part of the sports nutrition field before it was even known as sports nutrition. It wasn't even a field when Susan got started in it and conducted her PhD looking at muscle. And her initial doctoral studies really influenced the decisions she made as a consultant and built the foundation for the rest of her career and we talk a lot about that as well. Our conversation also details how she was one of the co-founders of the International Society of Sports Nutrition which is one of my trusted credible sources that I look to for the most up-to-date and relevant science-backed information in and around the sports nutrition field. And it is, you know, it was such an honor to be able to spend time talking to Susan. And I really hope that you enjoy this interview. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mickey. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I say good morning, though it is afternoon at both of our respective um, places, you being in Seattle and me in Auckland. And um, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you so much for taking some time to chat to me today. I have been a long-term follower of your work and um, always catch your podcasts and um, I'm really interested in what you've got on Facebook and, and a whole host of things, including, of course, you know, your academic publications. And you are certainly someone who has been in the field for many years now. And with that comes a wealth of experience. Well, it was um, really fun to be at the beginning of a profession that I have to say um, was an exciting time. It was kind of a heady time. I um, finished my PhD in 1987. Mm. Uh, when I began my master's degree in 1980, we weren't really using the term sports nutrition yet. And my PhD is in nutrition and human performance. As I understand it, you, your PhD is 
looking at physique athletes or bodybuilders and the use of steroids. Am I right? And, and physiological Yes, processes? exactly. Yeah. How does a female get into that kind of topic? And I know <laughs> that sounds like a weird question, but it just seems so forward thinking, right? So I was a biology major and I was very interested in health and thought I wanted to go to medical school because there really wasn't a path around prevention yeah. yet. Um, you know, there was a magazine from Rodale uh, publishers that was called Prevention, but in the health field, the terminology didn't really exist much around prevention. And so I thought, well, I have to go to medical school to become a physician and then really study health. Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately, a very good friend of mine's dad was the Dean of Admissions of the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I live. And he said to me, we'd love to have you in medical school. You'll learn nothing about what you're interested in. You're interested in health. We teach people how to treat disease. Go talk to the Department of Nutrition, which was completely eye-opening for me because I thought nutrition was just a hobby. Mm. So... So, I mean, clearly had I gone to a large um, university, there would have been a department of nutrition and I would have known all of that, but I went to a very small liberal arts college with a very heavy focus on research, mm. not sending people off to medical school or professional school. So the idea of studying muscle and how muscle worked, what we needed to do to feed muscle to help it grow was a question. And uh, as I went through my, my master's degree and came right back, I became a registered dietitian and came right back for my doctorate. That was my interest of how do you make muscle grow? And um, the studying that was going on at the time was in sort of the early days where dietitians and nutrition scientists were involved so that the methodology was good, mm. um, was in the area of aerobic exercise. Um, yeah. We were understanding that cardiovascular health, um, that nutrition played a role. It was the very early days, 1980, mm. uh, 1981, 1982, we only were just having the consensus conference that diet even played a role in health yeah. and, and in cardiovascular disease. And so the research was around people were running and jogging and cycling. And that's where the fueling research really was. Um, I um, had the opportunity to be at the Cleveland Clinic where a foundation where they were doing you know, they were the, the medical professionals associated with the NFL team, the Cleveland Browns, where, uh, you know, there was a number of, of work being done with athletes and Dr. John Lombardo was unique in the medical profession as a sports medicine physician. He was a, actually a family practice doc in sports medicine. And he believed that even athletes who used anabolic steroids deserved medical care. Mm. And if you, you know, it may be hard to imagine today that that was novel, yeah. that that was trend breaking, that, uh, a, you know, a bona fide physician would knowingly treat 
an athlete using anabolic steroids, which at the time weren't even illegal, to be honest. It's just that it was certainly considered cheating. Yeah. And right. And so also at that time was the very early days of the HIV epidemic, the AIDS epidemic. And the man who was treating these patients with a disease that we didn't know what it was, an autoimmune disease that we didn't know or, or, or had something to do with the immune system, HIV had not been identified yet, the virus, uh, Dr. Len Calabrese, he was the doctor, uh, basically the immunologist between New York City and Chicago, we were in Cleveland, who was treating all of these patients and no one knew what to do with them and they were all wasting away. And he was also interested in sports. And so the confluence of those two things led him to question whether you could give patients anabolic steroids Mm. uh, and that would keep them from wasting away. And so, but no one had asked the question, what was the influence of anabolic steroids on immune function? Mm. I was interested in what were the nutritional needs of athletes taking anabolic steroids because they clearly did something. Yeah. Although we were talking about them as if they weren't doing anything in the medical world. And so I sort of dropped in to his study where he definitely had to look at nutritional adequacy in these athletes who were taking steroids and then look at what was the impact on immune function. And I wanted to look at steroid using bodybuilders to see what was the influence of diet versus anabolic steroids. And so that's where this huge study then came together that I had an unbelievable opportunity as a young green PhD student to create and write my own research, to get my own research funding, which was a plus and a minus. I mean, you know, most people drop into a funded situation, but it really was a a very exciting time where we were trying to understand uh, what really were anabolic steroids doing? Mm. What was the role that diet played? How could you make a healthier athlete and keep them championship level? And so, and, 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 and what were the mechanisms of muscle growth? And so Mm. I was really doing more of an observational study, but, but it led to the beginning of all this research uh, because it finally gave us real data Mm. on what were these athletes eating? What drugs were they taking? A, A thorough description of the garbage bags full of drugs that they were taking and the impact on many clinical parameters mm. that we looked at. And so, so that's how, I mean, it was my question. I did, I did start to bodybuild at that time. I was introduced uh, by a female bodybuilder to bodybuilding. I never got into the performative aspects of it. I was yeah. purely fascinated with what the body could do. Mm. And if, And if you studied these extremes, what would it teach us about anybody who did that kind of exercise? And so 
you obviously had a personal interest in kind of muscle growth, muscle building, and obviously with your studies as well as a registered dietitian. What were your habits like back then, Susan? If you can kind of think back, you know, were you, did you learn, were the things that you learned in your PhD, were, were they kind of eye-opening to you? Did they change what you did um, or how you coached others? It was, it was, it was fascinating. There were so many things. So I had come out of the world of dance personally. So I was a pre-Title IX girl, meaning in this country, there was almost no sports, organized sports opportunities through school for, for girls in sports, particularly Mm. in the Midwest. Mm. And so I was a modern dancer. I had trained, um, not, I hadn't danced professionally, but I had gone to New York to study uh, at 16 years old. So, so I really did have um, sort of high hopes, but then recognized I really wanted to learn more and go to college. I, so I came home. In my sort of journey into bodybuilding, I, I, I had started doing all different kinds of sports in college, but then into the bodybuilding, it, just the feeling of strength and power that I got from lifting yeah. was was just a wonderful feeling and gave me tremendous respect because I actually was in the gym with some seriously training athletes, Cleveland, Ohio. It was and remains a main area for um, the building of highly competitive athletes. And Mm. so, and all of Ohio is. So I, I had firsthand knowledge of what these men and women were doing physically for their training, yet within the um, sort of exercise science and exercise physiology community, there was really no knowledge of what these athletes were doing. And and a pretty, um, I guess (laughs) the nice way to put it was kind of an elitist attitude by uh, people who worked with athletes who were in competitive sports uh, toward athletes who were in the bodybuilding world. And, um, and, And so there were a lot of negative attitudes toward them. And so the first thing I learned was these were some highly trained athletes training at serious levels. They were not guzzling beer drinkers, smoking cigarettes that, and, and, and they did drugs, but they were not doing what everyone thought they were doing. They were, you know, very focused on their diet, very focused on their training. They certainly didn't smoke and most of them didn't drink. And so, so that was, that was one piece. Next was what did they do with their diets? And there were some jaw dropping things that I saw. I mean, the volume of fat in the diet. Now, this is the mid 1980s where athletes, especially the the big, the big um, body male bodybuilders that I was working with the, you know, sort of heavyweights, you know, were eating pounds of meat a day. They were drinking a gallon of whole milk a day. They were eating a dozen eggs, usually raw in a, in a shake a day. And so the volume of fat was extreme compared to, you know, very high compared to what we were starting to talk about to be careful with the fat in your diet because of cardiovascular disease. Yet in most of these athletes, despite their steroid use, when they were off of steroids, when they would cycle off, so they'd cycle on and off, when they were off, 
their cholesterol levels, their other clinical parameters looked fairly good. Mm. So um, along with that, there were a number of other things that made us think that muscle building exercise must have some health benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to this, there was no mention of anything like that, that you had to be doing cardiovascular exercise, aerobic, aerobic, um, what we recognize as aerobic exercise then. Today, we understand that weightlifting also is cardiovascular, yeah. that, that, right, that it's working and pumping your heart, that it's working your muscles. There's so many things that we understand today that we had no knowledge of then. This was just like a shadow, a window of, hmm, there's something here that must be health promoting or else these athletes would look much worse than they do because they did no cardiovascular exercise in those days. Did you do any yourself as you got into this kind of muscle building um, from a physique perspective? Were you also doing any kind of cardio type work, Susan, or were you predominantly just focused on um, building muscle? Well, because I wasn't thinking about getting on a stage, I wasn't really influenced by that level of, of training um, on the one hand, certainly not using drugs. And the, and the other was, yeah, I enjoyed so many personal sports. And yeah. so I, I loved to cycle. I, I did some running. I continued to dance. I was taking, still taking dance lessons during that time. We did a lot of hiking. I had, I had um, started uh, whitewater kayaking. I mean, I was doing a lot of fun things that were becoming popular at the time. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was not, you know, sort of training in the image of my subjects. Mm. Uh, funny story, neither was my husband. So my husband has always been more of that lean looking distance athlete type. He's the one who taught me to kayak. He was, he was uh, somewhat competitive at that time, built his own kayaks. He he, you know, was much more of a distance style athlete on his bicycle, uh, cross country skiing was the off season, the opposite of when we kayaked. Anyway, uh, I had gone to the movies one night and my husband was with me and uh, a number of the subjects, my, they were friends of each other and we saw them outside the theater and hey doc, you know, hey doc. And I said, I want to introduce you to my husband. And they all give him this very strange look, like who is this skinny guy <laughs> who you've got with you? Like, what's up with that? <laughs> so that was, yeah. So, so my world was a, a real combination. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, um, and I, sup- I suppose from your kind of initial beginnings with both your personal interest and obviously your, um, your study in sports nutrition has led you to become one of the most revered sports nutritionists in the States. And you work with a number of high um, performing athletes and particularly team sport athletes, right? Everything. Uh, So I do team sport athletes. I work with, you know, I always say I'll work with anybody. Mm -hmm. Number one, they have to exercise. Um, You know, I, I don't know how to help you if you don't exercise, uh, yeah. because to me, weight loss is not a goal, it's an outcome. 
And so if you are coming to me to lose weight and, and you're talking about a diet, but you don't exercise, I can't work with you. Mm. Um, however, uh, I do say that anyone who wants to achieve peak performance from the courtroom to the boardroom to the bedroom, uh, as well as on the field of sport, uh, I can work with you. So, so it's a huge range of people, elite athletes, professional athletes, uh, Olympians, um, recreational athletes, uh, even, even youth athletes, not very young. Uh, usually the youngest I'll work with is high school, um, but certainly collegiate athletes and, and anybody else, you know, I've worked with pilots, I've worked with CEOs of industry, I've worked with, you know, all kinds of adults who, you know, kind of left their athletic identity behind mm. and started a family, went to work, and all of a sudden recognized that this really isn't the life that they want. And they want to be healthy and fit and fit it all in, but they can't figure out how to do it. And so I work with them as well. Yeah, it's, you know, and what I found really interesting when I was looking at um, your profile, Susan, was just that you were right there at the beginning of sports nutrition and you sat around a, uh, like a table with like Jose Antonio, for example, and, and we're like, right, we're going to start something here. And because you're a co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, Correct. Correct. How did that come about? Like what, what kind of conversations were going on? Well, that's a funny, you know, there's so many funny stories. So um, I had been, you know, I am a registered dietitian. I had been a member of the, what was originally the American Dietetic Association today, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I am no longer a member, but at that time I was a member and I was a member of SCAN, the Sports and Cardiovascular Nutritionist Practice Group was really the only home for people doing sports nutrition, but you had to be an ADA member. You had to be a registered dietitian. Hmm. And, you know, by the 1990s, for sure, I mean, I had colleagues doing, that knew a lot about nutrition and nutrition science, for sure, in the world of exercise science and exercise physiology. And, and even in the world of personal training and coaching, well, how were those people supposed to be able to have a conversation mm. with their clients or their athletes without any training? Um, the, the sense of territorial <laughs> you know, control didn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. The second was that that I, it wasn't just that, but it was, it was the ability to get a good education to all of these people who as registered dietitians, we would never have enough numbers mm -hmm. to meet the need. And so to leave the registered dietitian as the specialist, but to have some basic education, as I said, for coaches, for trainers, for physical therapists, for all kinds of people who are always on the front lines of talking mm. to people on a daily basis and be able to give them some good basic knowledge. There really wasn't yet very much of that available. And so we were 
I, I had gotten very frustrated and we had a, a scan meeting where actually Dr. Doug Coleman, prior to being Dr. Coleman, um, was the program director for that SCAN meeting. Doug is a registered dietitian. He was quite active in SCAN. And SCAN also very much focused, as I said, the, the focus of the profession as a whole was on aerobic and cardiovascular training. And so even though I had been a member of SCAN since like 1982, 83, the very early days, I had never been asked to speak. Um, and, and all of us in this world where we were really doing work in strength and power, uh, there was never a conference that had any interest in bringing those speakers. Uh, when Doug was the program director, he invited all of us. So it was me, it was Joey, uh, Antonio, Dr. Antonio, it was Dr. Rick Kreider, um, I believe that Marie Spano was there. She was always at the conferences. Um, and, and so I don't actually even remember the, the full uh, group of people who were there, but we were all sitting around a big table at dinner. Uh, we had all gone out like for Chinese or something. And, and it was kind of a moment of frustration for me saying, how are all these people, including industry, how is industry ever supposed to, to recognize and understand why they should be doing research if they're not at the table mm. when research presentations are being done? And so um, I kind of, in frustration, kind of yelled out, we should just start our own organization. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the exclusivity. Uh, on, on the knowledge. And so everybody laughed and said, Sue, you're crazy. And about three months later, Dr. Antonio called me and he said, were you serious? Did you really mean that we should start a new organization? And I said, yes. And that was the beginning. So the founders were myself, Dr. Antonio, Dr. Kalman, uh, Dr. Kreider, and uh, Anthony Almada. Mm. Anthony Almada at that time, I believe, was uh, still working with EAS. He was a co-founder of the highly successful supplement company, EAS, yeah. that had brought creatine kind of to the, certainly to the U.S. Yeah. So that's the beginning of ISSN. Yeah. And, you know, like it's one of my kind of go-tos with regards to, you know, being, staying current with research in and around sports nutrition, but also just nutrition in general, as it relates to humans as athletes, because, you know, I feel like there's so much crossover between how we talk to athletes about nutrition, but also really good practices and principles that kind of the everyday person can also, you know, take on board. Because oftentimes people think that nutrition related information in and around strength, in and around power is, you know, the domain of your strength and power athlete, which are without actually thinking about, you know, in terms of us being healthy and, and growing old but being healthy, like a large, you know, there's so much crossover in that space, Susan. Yes. And, you know, uh, relative to the question I didn't really answer, which was, have I changed the way I speak to clients because of the research subjects that I had? Well, very much so. I mean, at that time, I really learned and, and it was to the, you know, I was, I had this tremendous advantage of having these incredible clinicians 
who were my mentors and guides, Dr. Calabrese, Dr. Lombardo, Dr. Kirkendall, who was the exercise physiologist, um, how you speak to cl your clients in a non-judgmental way. Mm. Because they were judged all the time. They were, they were, you know, sort of outcasts of the athletic world because they were bodybuilders. They were outcasts and, and they were lived, which was a subculture of itself. And then the subculture beneath that of the drug use. And when it came to female bodybuilders, even far more secretive. So my, my research continued and I, I went from my doctoral research with male bodybuilders to working with female bodybuilders also in the 1980s. And that really was a very secretive sort of society, even amongst each other at that time. So, so learning to speak to people without any judgment Mm. to really learn mm. what are they doing, why are they doing it, and what are they open to exploring, yeah. to, to, to experiment with a different way, and um, how much leeway do you have in helping them move along that continuum from where they are now to where they'd like to go. And yeah. And that has remained a foundational part of my practice always, and really my interaction with people in general for yeah. the rest of my life. Um, as far as the how do you eat for strength and power, you couldn't be more right on. I mean, it's, it's you know, when I wrote the original Power Eating, people really did see it as, uh, you know, in its own category, you know, its own lane. This is for strength and power athletes. It's never going to affect a runner or a cyclist or a rower or any, you know, this is for um, people who want to be in the play hockey or play football or, you know, or uh, track and field, the athletes that are the strength and power athletes. So it's in its fifth edition is the new power eating. It is used by all athletes at all levels of sport at all ages. And I talk about it as sports agnostic. Nice. That, that no matter who you are, and even if you don't see yourself as an athlete, but you just want to live a longer, healthier life and maintain your independence, it applies to you too. So what are those principles, Susan? So if you're working with someone, um, and let's just, you know, even like the language is the same across the board with, and the principles are the same, regardless of whether they're gen pop or or elite athlete, obviously the goals will be different, but what are some fundamental principles that you use if you're talking to someone about improving body composition? Overall, I kind of have an overarching paradigm that I call the power eating paradigm. And it's built on the philosophy of abundance, yeah. not restriction or that there's just not enough to go around, that we have to be smaller. Yeah. And so in thinking about abundance rather than scarcity and scarcity, meaning that having the body that you want is a scarce thing, yeah. then, uh, then you have to fuel your body. You have to increase your fuel to have enough energy so that you can train hard. Yeah. Which is what builds muscle. Yeah. Which ultimately increases performance. And if you need to lose fat, you will. 
Well, interesting. I saw a um, one of your earlier papers, and I believe it was published in 2003 or 2004, was a case study of, I believe it was an NBA basketball player. Do you want to describe to us kind of, if you if you can remember, I'm sorry, I know it. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. I, I think, I don't think I forget a client. Yeah. I mean, I, they're all so unique. Um, but yes, and this was a, this was a, a very difficult case. I was called in to work with, um, you know, a five-time All-Star NBA athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he was nearly seven feet tall, about six eleven and a half, something yep. like that. Um, a young man in his early twenties, and or maybe mid twenties, and he. Uh, had, I was called in, it was just after the NBA lockout. So the athletes had called a strike. Mm -hmm. And the, the owners association locked them out Mm -hmm. and said, if you well, if you're going to strike, we're not even we're not going to negotiate. And we're going to shut down the season. And so they were not allowed to go into the facilities and train. They weren't really supposed to have contact with their coaches at all. They were kind of left on their own. And these are very young men, Mm. right? With more money than they should have at that age and be alone. Yeah. um, With no advice on what to do with it. And I don't begrudge a penny that they get. But as I said, without good guidance, they can get themselves into trouble. Yeah. And, uh, and so this was after that lockout, they came back and this athlete was high, was overweight and undertrained. Mm-hmm. Now there probably were many of the athletes that were in that situation. Um, this athlete had had, had, had also sort of evolved into other personal issues in his life during this time. Again, not having very good guidance and, I was called in to work with him. He wasn't showing up to practices. Uh, he did have a contract weight in and a contract body composition uh, that he had to meet, and he wasn't meeting either of those. Was that and normal as I said, he at the time? A contract weight? Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes yes and no. It depended on the athlete if they thought that he. You know, I. I, I wasn't that familiar with all the different athlete contracts at that time. Mm. It seemed a little unusual in a male NBA player's contract to have that, but maybe somebody, you know, for whatever reason, he was ex- he was one of the highest paid athletes at the time. So maybe his contract was a little different. Yeah, he wasn't showing up. He he his play was terrible, and they called me in to see uh, the, the, the strength and conditioning coach knew, knew of me and called and said, can you come in and maybe help us with this athlete? So I went in and it took you know 20 minutes to recognize that this athlete was actually, although I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not certified in, in uh, clinical diagnosis, but he certainly seemed clinically depressed to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that had been happening is that they had started weighing him regularly. Mm. So every like other day, 
he knew that when he showed up to practice, they were going to put him on the scale. Well, what does anybody do? They stop eating. Yeah. Right. And so he's not eating, but his body fat is going up and nobody can figure out what's going on. Yeah. So the combination of things along with, and, and this may, may give it away if anyone reads the case study and is knowledgeable of NBA players at the time, they will figure out who this is. Um, he also um, was obviously drinking too much alcohol. Yeah. And so, so I had to become sort of his nutritional psychologist um, without any psych training to speak of. Uh, but he was incredibly motivated and responsive. And everything that I did with him, he responded to. But to understand, I started working with him. And if I, you may recall better having just read it, he was eating like 1,500 or 1,800 calories a day. Yeah. That's what I saw in your case study, you had written that, you know, that very low, you gave a sample kind of of what his diet looked like. And there were some clear patterns actually within it that is, is not unfamiliar to me as I work with a number of athletes and I'm and, and what you, how you described his pattern of no breakfast of, um, you know, this was obviously his kind of weight loss, you know, don't want to eat pattern, no breakfast no idea when training was actually, but then there was lunch, there was snack, there was dinner, and in total about that 15 to 1700 kilocalories per day. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he was well on his way to an eating disorder. Yeah. And who would have thought that a seven foot young, you know, 26 year old NBA athlete could be on his way to an eating disorder. I mean, especially, you know, thinking about when this was, mm. uh, it, you know, this was way outside anything anyone had ever described yeah. before. And so what we had real clarity and what we understood even then was get this guy off the scale yeah, and explain what's happening, that the reason his body composition is going south is because he's dropping muscle as, day by day as he's walking around. Mm. The reason he's not coming to practice is because he has no energy to get out of bed. Mm. And, and so uh, I put him on, I think uh, we started at around 5,000 calories. We brought it down to 4,500, I believe. Uh, certainly got his drinking under control. Um, made them stop putting him on the scale. And, and he actually did. And he, so then he had the energy to get out of bed and go to his training and show up and do all the things he needed to do. And I have never seen a transformation of, of a body so quickly. And, you know, what it told me is when you put everything in, that was the beginning of my experimentation with the neurobiology of food as well. So this was the late 80s. Yeah. And I was reading because I thought I have this depressed athlete. I have to do something other than just feed him in general. There must be things that I can do. And so that's when I started with five salmon meals a day where here we are in Seattle, we could do that. You know, we we added eggs back into his diet. There were so many things, the egg yolk being so important, nuts being so important, so many things where I could see where it interacted 
with brain function, um, also gut function. And so the ground flaxseed every day, there were, you know, but I threw everything into one diet. You couldn't experiment. There was no time. We had seven weeks, I believe, or nine weeks to get him. That's all they gave me or else he was going to be off contract. Now, obviously this is a while ago. Um, do you remember being nervous? Like going, oh my goodness, this is on me with this person or were you like quite confident that you could see what was going on and then the, you know, steer him right. I was angry. Yeah. I was very angry because I came out of my first meeting with him and I said, this guy needs a clinical therapist. Yeah. And they said, no way. Because if the press hears that he's getting any kind of psych help, yep. we'll never be able to trade him. Yep. And our goal is to trade this guy. And your job is to get him into shape so we can trade him. Wow. And, and so I called the agent and I said, you need to get this guy some psych help. Mm -hmm. And he said, no way. My pocketbook is on the line. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I wasn't allowed to reach out to his family. He asked me not to do that. Mm. But I was, I was so angry because here was someone worth a fortune to the team that was making them money yeah. and now was a deficit. But even so, he's a human being. Yeah. And it was all on me to get him both refed and meant and emotionally and mentally healthy. Yeah. And I knew I didn't really have the skill to do that. Ultimately, we had such a wonderful relationship that we got him where he needed to go. And as I said, he, it was, he had to do it. Yeah. Um, I said to him, this is an experiment. I think this is going to work by all the numbers. Everything's going to work, but you have to do it. And we did, like, I gave him a few days to catch up on his calories. We didn't go from 1,800 to 5,000 overnight. But in just a few days, he felt so much better mm. because he was released from this guilt that he couldn't eat anything. Yeah. And, and he trusted me. I mean, there was tremendous trust. Um, something very hard to get these days with clients because they're so, and I'm sure anyone listening to this knows that every client that comes in is coming to you, but they're also listening to a whole bunch of self-style gurus telling them all kinds of things that are opposite to what you're telling them. And so gaining that trust today takes a little more work, but um, he, he followed through, his body responded, like I said, like I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Dramatic changes in body composition huge swings mm -hmm. in, in a matter of seven weeks. And then we had another way in, I believe two weeks later, something like that. And, and it was, it was a, a profound change. Of course, he also had some dehydration. You know, we had some other things going on that were in our favor yeah. that made his body composition look worse at the beginning and look better at the end. Um, however, it, it, that was nothing nothing could explain away the changes that we saw. Um, but because he didn't have the help he needed, uh, he was trade. He, he, I think he finished the season. He did quite well. He was traded. And then he, he slid backwards into alcoholism. And it was 
Um, I think it took probably far too long for him to get the treatment he needed. Whereas I firmly believe today, had he had the treatment when I started with him, Mm -hmm. when he still was so receptive Mm -hmm. and it hadn't been so long a period of time, Mm. I believe his outcome, I can't say for sure, but his outcome may have been different. Yeah. So, but, but, but as far as the nutritional experiment, just what we saw was pretty profound. And did I know it was going to work? I was pretty sure that if he did it, we were going to see good results. Would we hit the numbers? That I really had no idea. Yeah, it's so interesting because I like I wonder, I mean, you were in a position where you had had the evidence behind you with regards to muscle and, and what feeds and what fuels muscle. So when you come to a client like that and you can see the body composition changes and you've you've got that kind of background knowledge whereas I feel like so many practitioners might have looked at that case and gone well he's clearly under reporting or he's you know there's something he's not telling me and so we're going to have to really dial in those you know nutrients which is that is not the approach that you took, or at least certainly that's not what I read in the case study. And I will obviously link the case study because it is a fascinating one. And you wrote it up so well, it was very easy to kind of follow through and and understand. And what I find interesting as well, Susan, is, you know, at the time, and and I know this was kind of uh, early 2000s or, or similar. I think I worked with him in 1999, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we think about sports nutrition principles, you know, with the amount of training that he would have been doing, like, with the amount of carbohydrate that would have been recommended, I wonder how much room there would have been for the eggs, for the nuts, for the the brain foods, if you like, if you were to say, put them on 10 grams of carbohydrate per kg body weight or or what might have been recommended for someone of his, you know, physical activity level. I don't know, i it, it feels like your approach was quite unique in the focus on what fuels the brain and the muscle for an athlete, I suppose. Well, and don't forget, I mean, I went to 5,000 calories a day. If yeah. you're eating 5,000 calories a day, you can get in all of the carbs and fats and proteins that you need. Yeah. Right. So, um, and I, I, I don't hold back when I'm working with an athlete. I mean, my, you know, I, there's another, um, I think it's called the, the Hilliard Talk. Um, it's a video of me at Texas A&M mm-hmm. doing a talk. It was, it's kind of like the TED Talks of, uh, of exercise physiology. They do, a, they do a, a marvelous job. And I gave a talk. So you have, I think we had, I don't remember if it was 15 minutes or something. And the whole talk really comes down to never under fuel training. Yeah. Never under fuel training. Why would someone who has a, unless the, unless the goal of your training is just purely to burn calories. I've been, I've been scolded for using the term junk miles, but um, that there is no such thing as junk miles by some of my colleagues, but um, certainly there are lots of people out there that just they use a, a, a run or a, a rowing episode or something purely as a calorie burner. Mm. Even under that circumstance, you're going to burn fewer calories if you don't eat anything and you're underfueled going into it. You're just going to run out of fuel and the last half of your training is going to be much lower 
caloric expenditure than had you fueled it to begin with. Yeah. However, the the concept of underfueling training when you're trying to cut and you're still trying to keep high levels of performance is is a, a c- complete contrast in mission and goals. Mm. You should never underfuel training. Now, if you want to, at that point where you have an athlete that is really in peak condition, they're in the middle of their season, which is the story that I'm telling about an athlete in that video, who then has to do uh, an ESPN body uh, shoot. She's going to be in the in the the ESPN body issue, and so she's in the middle of her competitive season, working toward a WNBA championship, and she's got to get photo shoot ready. Mm-hmm. And so she calls me and says, "Doc, you know, I I just want my abs more cut." And I said, "So you know, you're on a championship run to win the." the the whole the whole thing you to win your season and you want to do a cut <laughs> yes and i said okay it's going to be 2 weeks that's it mm-hmm. you don't need more than 2 weeks your body is in prime condition but we're never going to underfuel your training but we will scrape a little away around the margins at, at other ends of the day mm-hmm. to get a very slight calorie reduction. And those calories were predominantly from carbohydrates at that time of the day. I may have moved them to just prior to her, to around her training. Mm-hmm. So she didn't underfuel her training ever by carbs or her, or game day practice days, but that on the edges of her day, instead of, you know, we, we actually had some very small amount of decrease of calories and carbs pretty much were it Mm -hmm. at that time. She still was eating plenty of carbs, but we focused them all around pre, during, and post, not completely all, but, but as I said, predominantly. And two weeks of that was more than enough for her body to respond exactly how she wanted it and what I had predicted. I've been doing this long enough to know that it doesn't take much because our athletes, especially our female athletes, are so close to the margin of, you know, there's just not a lot of calorie wiggle room between what they're consuming and what they utilize. Yeah. And so once, if, if you just drop the tiniest bit, you get a marked effect. So have you got numbers? So for example, like, did you, did you kind of calculate we need this amount around training and then we need to shave off this amount in the course of a day? Because I guess the reason I ask is, you know, you'll have LCHFs, people who are low carbohydrate, high fat, who kind of get scared of carbohydrate in amounts greater than, you know, 50 grams per day um, without recognizing the amount of carbohydrate that's required in training means that a quote unquote, low carbohydrate load for one athlete might very well be moderate to high for someone who doesn't do that amount of training. So kind of what, what realm of, of um, carbohydrate would you have dropped out of that athlete's diet to have enabled that change over such a short period? I would say 
you know, remembering exactly, I think I say exactly in the video, and it's also the, the case study is in the new power eating. Awesome. Uh, maximum, it would be probably 75 grams a day. Yeah. Max. Yeah. Max. I would say it was probably closer to 50 to 60 grams of carb a day. That's all it took. That's 200 to 240 calories. Maybe I dropped her 300 calories. Yeah. And so, so in thinking about, and, and the amount of carb that she would eat around her training, she'd have a, about 105 grams of carb prior to a game. This is a carbohydrate supplement. I mean, this is pure carb yeah. just prior to the game. Uh, seven, 70 to 105 grams, depending on how she was feeling. She'd have at least another 35 grams at halftime and at least another 35 to 70 grams post game. Mm -hmm. um, practice not, was most of her practices were not as, as intense as a game. Mm. Uh, so uh, but I mean, so she's consuming 800 to 1,000 calories of carbohydrate pre, during, and post recovery, mm, mm -hmm. just as a picture. And, and so that, that was particularly because we had taken out a little bit around the edges of the day. She still needed the carbohydrate, but there is an effect by going through these hours, if she had, you know, we created a very tiny deficit. Yeah. But her body is in high metabolic mode. Yeah. And, and so she got that tiny little extra fat burn that she wanted to get, but it didn't affect her performance. Because we limited it to two weeks, had we gone longer, ultimately there would have been a performance effect. Yeah. And I think, you know, that it's such a good lesson in, in kind of sports nutrition, if you like, and just in both of those case studies really kind of tell us a little bit about that metabolic cost in training. You know, if you remove the fuel in and around training, which, which a lot of, you know, athletes do in this intention to, to improve body composition, because they feel like, well, if I need to burn fat, then I can't eat anything in and around training because that is going to impact on my ability to burn fat without recognizing the whole metabolic cost of that effort is reduced. And in addition to that, probably the, uh, the rest of the day, if it's done earlier in the day, the energy adaptation that occurs because they're under fueling where they need to fuel all changes the ability to create that calorie deficit because that's ultimately what, what you need to do, right? Right, exactly. And so if, you're, if your goal of your training is to enhance performance, the minute you under fuel your training, you, you create a performance deficit. Mm. Uh, and, and so, so your training is never going to get you where you want to go. And you, this is very often a common reason for a plateau. Yeah. Right. Because, um, I'm, I'm, my diet is perfect. I've cut out all my carbs. I have no potatoes, no rice, no. And I'm not saying you have to eat potatoes and rice. Yeah. I'm just saying what gets reported. Right. I, 
I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. It's this world of scarcity and restriction. I'm, I'm training harder, but I'm getting softer. I'm, I'm training longer, but I'm, my performance is going down. I'm not sleeping well. I'm getting brain fog. Sometimes my hair is falling out. My skin looks terrible, but I'm doing everything right. What, what's happening to me? And I say, well, do you think it could be your diet? I mean, you're here. Mm. Well, it's impossible. It can't be my diet. I'm doing everything perfectly. And this is where I said to you, there are so many self-described gurus out there mm. doing real harm. No athlete should take their nutrition advice from the diet world. Yeah. The diet world doesn't even know what it's doing with obesity and weight loss, let alone giving advice for sports performance. Yeah. And so the minute you underfuel your training, you are creating training deficits, meaning you are not working out as hard as it feels. Yeah. On your on your rate of perceived exertion. We can there are many studies that show that when you decrease calories and particularly decrease carbs and you are trying to do high intensity exercise and let's keep it at that because there's it's a different story if you're as i said just running slow miles mm. but if you're trying to do high intensity exercise your rate of perceived exertion will go up yeah but your watt output your actual energy output will go down. Mm. So it feels like you're working out at a 10, but you're really working out at a six. And so yeah, on a scale of one to 10, right? Where one is sitting on a couch and 10 is puke or pass out. If you're, if you're feeling like you're at an eight or a nine and you have underfueled your training, you are not really, you're per, you really are perceiving that, but you're not training at that level. You're not getting the training effect of that hard work. So as one of my clients said to me many years ago, I can no longer waste my time in the gym, which is kind of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, isn't it? And, you know, obviously carbohydrate is one thing. I don't know about your experience, Susan, but People I work with, uh, athlete or otherwise, as an endurance athlete myself, I probably have half of my clients are athletes, but they under eat protein. Oh, yes. Because a lot of the rhetoric out there is really that everyone overeats protein because they're comparing protein intakes to the recommended daily allowance or dietary intake without sufficient thought or even the knowledge that actually as an athlete and probably just a general person needs more than that minimum threshold for survival. Well, and, and particularly female athletes, mm. um, because many of them are restricting uh, and they just don't have, and sometimes it's, it's not intentional. Sometimes yeah. it's uh, lack of knowledge yeah. and, and, and the sense that I've eaten enough. Yeah. I'm, if I eat any more, I'm going to be too full to train. Yeah. And so, so there's, it's, that's the, that's what a registered dietitian can so help with that nobody else can do mm. really translating the science of nutrition into food, mm. into teaching people how to do, to create a menu, how to separate and in a day, get in the fruits and the vegetables and the nuts and the seeds and the, and the protein foods and, and the grains and the beans. How do I get all that in, in a day? and still be empty enough to train. Yeah. And this is where our knowledge not only helps with the distribution of food during the day, 
but also in what at what time is it advantageous to use engineered foods, mm. scientifically designed products for use around exercise. And so, so that knowledge base is invaluable. And uh, so that's where I think the training of a registered dietitian is unique because we really understand how to translate that as well. You know, the protein issue, I, I do, um, I haven't done it this year, obviously, but I teach at a medical school in South Vietnam. Mm. And I was honored to be invited to speak at an international conference in, um, in South Vietnam, uh, in Saigon, regarding uh, geriatrics and nutrition. Mm -hmm. and, and what was the single most important thing that I wanted to talk about? And it was protein. Yeah. How important protein is throughout our lifetimes and how much as we age and we do start to cut out some foods that protein rich foods are really reduced in the diet. And it is, it is very detrimental to our health. Uh, sarcopenia is such a big problem. Protein is absolutely required for the maintenance of muscle, not to mention so many, you know, so many other important areas and uh, and, and maintaining those activities of daily living are 100% dependent on having the muscle to do so. Mm. How does sports nutrition translate across the board? Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, how can you stay active if you're not fueled enough at any age? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm speaking, I'm part of a group that is um, putting on an international women's conference in March 2022. And our area is social oh, change. I know it really is right. And, you know, a couple of the different topics, one of them is how we encourage women who are um, getting into the master's years and beyond how we encourage them to be active. And, and as a nutritionist, you know, I'm, I'm on a bunch of, I'm on a kind of a board with a bunch of people who work in racial inequities and um and gender inequalities and things like that and I'm sitting here thinking how could I possibly contribute as a nutritionist but when that topic came up you know first and foremost these women have to have the right nutrients to enable them to be active in the first place whereas so many people that you talk to just in general everyday life like are underfueled are underfueled in protein and have you know these things drive other eating patterns which can cause metabolic disruption and disturbances and, and things like that. So it's that real kind of fundamental kind of fueling and fueling appropriately at, at all age groups, right? To, to enable us to continue to be active. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So Susan, what does your diet look like? <laughs> so I'm, <clears throat> I, I've, I've eaten uh, the same sort of three different selections of breakfast for probably 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk me through. I have, so I, I have my, uh, I like, I really, I love grains. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a whole, you know, I'm kind of known for this whole, whole grain thing that I'm on a, I'm on a whole shtick right now with it. It's critically important. The sourdough uh, bread. But I, yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and fresh flour, yeah. fresh fresh flour and, and the sourdough baking technique, how important that is of, of uh, the live yeast and the fermentation, mm -hmm. very important. So, um, but my typical breakfast, actually, I have a, 
I like all the different puffed cereals. I've always liked that. It's kind of a texture thing. I've always liked them. And so these days I'm eating a puffed camet. Mm -hmm. I have that. I grind flaxseed every morning in a little sort of dedicated burr coffee grinder. So I always have flaxseed. Um, I actually put creatine yeah. in. I have about three grams of creatine that I throw in there. Um, and I'll have uh, some kind of, you know, berries or raisins and bananas or, you know, some kind of fresh fruit. And, and that when I'm eating cereal, I have milk and, and I'm a, I'm a, I, I am blessed with a body that has plenty of lactase. I have yeah. never, my whole family has been milk drinkers to our, you know, old age. So, and I love milk. And so, um, so I, I, I am a, a, a profound dairy consumer. So I have, that's one breakfast. Another breakfast is a big bowl of Greek yogurt with all the same stuff in it. Mm -hmm. It's just not, but without the cereal. And, and on that morning, I may have a slice of, of a really good whole grain bread and always a cup of coffee. Yeah. So some mornings it's a latte. I make it home myself. Some days it's just black coffee. Uh, and then the, the, the other alternative to that is eggs. And so I'll have, uh, I, I make sure to have at least five egg yolks a week, um, usually spread out as a whole egg plus a bunch of egg white. Mm -hmm. uh, then I also do have a slice of bread. I may have a glass of half orange juice and half sparkling water something like that and, and always coffee. So that's, that's it. Like there is very, very little variation from that. Um, and on the days that I have eggs, I don't have the flaxseed. So I often will then have the yogurt at lunch so I can get the flaxseed in there. Yeah. Or I'll make a smoothie and I put the, I put the flaxseed in there. Nice. And what about lunch? What is lunch for you? Where do you do the same thing? Yeah, so these days I don't do a snack between breakfast and lunch because I'm so sedentary, mm. unfortunately. Uh, and I just am not even hungry. I, I drink a lot of, of fluids, but I, you know, I, I don't feel like I have the need for a snack in between. Lunch can be anywhere from sort of a turkey sandwich to a salad with turkey, uh, tuna salad. I have a wonderful tuna that we get here that is um, a, a local family. Um, if you want it, anybody wants it, you can't get it, I'm sure in New Zealand, but it's tunatuna.com. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Italy or sardines, I am a big fan of sardines. So it'll be salad or a sandwich, you know, that's kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's a smoothie that I know that I'm on my way somewhere. So I make that early, throw it in the fridge. And so, that will have maybe some milk in it, some protein powder, maybe the creatine goes in there for the day and the flaxseed. Uh, I put cocoa in there, sometimes peanut butter, some fruit. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes avocado. It's just sort of what's around. Yeah. Spinach, you know, who knows what'll go in there. Uh, and then uh, sometime in the middle of the afternoon, I always have, I typically have some nuts, um, a small handful. I'm very partial to these. Again, this is from Vietnam is where I was introduced to them. These cashews that still have, you may have them there, cashews that still have the skin on it. Yes. We've, I've just discovered these in the last six months. They are delicious. 
yeah. So, so that's like, a, that's become my, my delicious snack in the afternoon. You know, other times I can admit, sometimes I'll have some whole grain chips. Sometimes I have another slice of bread with some peanut butter, um, you know, or some almond butter, just depends. And then uh, dinner is typically uh, some kind of vegetables or a bunch of vegetables, uh, uh, fish, chicken, tofu. Um, I have a wonderful, marvelous Brazilian bean soup that we've been eating that I made. That's out of the Moosewood cookbook. Now I'm getting into more soup season. I am not a person that loves to spend hours and hours in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I find recipes that are fast and easy. All the recipes in all of my books are things that I actually make, but I do like to bake uh, bread. And so that's often, you know, until my freezer is so full that we need, I need to stop baking and I start to use them. Yeah. Um, I do on the weekends, I usually have a day that a day that I'm baking and probably cleaning and doing work on the side or something like that. So those are kind of my days. Nice. And, um, and in terms of working out, what are you currently doing? What's your schedule like? Well, you know, we're in this COVID haze mm. here. I have to admit that I'm nowhere near as active as I was. And I don't mind saying that. I, I feel like I want to give grace to everybody out mm. there. Um, I was a real gym rat and I, I'm also, you know, in, as I say, the second half of my life and I have no intention of working out in a gym with other people huffing and puffing with or without masks. I'm just not going in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm still paying (laughs) because I don't want them to go away, but I'm, I'm not going. And so it's kind of my philanthropy. So I am in the Pacific Northwest. We have wonderful hiking. So at, at once a week, I force myself to get outside and hike mm-hmm. uh, or go for a good walk. You can just call it a good many hour outdoor walk yeah. uh, in the urban setting. I, um, I have a, my bicycle on a trainer. And so I'll get on there. I had been religious with my strength training at home. I have enough of a smattering of stuff here. And that was during our closure, that was in April and May, and I was so good. And then I've kind of fallen off the wagon, but I have to say for any woman who is looking for a good sort of, let me get back to what I know how to do, whether you're at a gym or you're home, I have it upstairs. Unfortunately, I don't have her book here. Um, It's uh, anyone, especially who's older, Amanda Thebe has just written Menacopolis, okay. Menapocalypse, <laughs> Menapocalypse. Yeah. She has a fabulous training program in there. I, I just think it is so good for a do it yourself. I have been out of my training mode. I don't want to get hurt. I'm not, I, I don't have a trainer. I want to do this at home. It's, I think she's done a marvelous job, not to mention that the book is funny. She is a funny person. Do you know Amanda? No, I don't. I've just written her name down though. So I'll put it in the show oh, notes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's, she also was a COVID long hauler. Oh. Um, so someone who got COVID pretty early on and it wouldn't go away. Oh, mate. Gosh. So she suffered symptoms for months. Yeah. She is a Brit who is in Canada. And she's a trainer and she's marvelous. And so for all the women of a certain age out there, 
all of us who are still going strong. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've fallen off the wagon and you'd like to get started again, that's a, a really good start. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. I've, as I said, I've got that down as a, um, as a resource I'll pop in the show notes and everyone is always super interested to hear what other people are doing. So, you know, it was great that you were able to share some of your like favorite meals and what you love, including, and your um, creatine, uh, like your daily creatine. I love that as well. I've actually just started doing that over the last three or four months myself. And I just feel like oh, good with all of the evidence out there with regards to the brain and, and with bone and just with health, so worth it. Oh yeah. I, I strongly recommend it. And if you're taking three grams a day, I mean, maybe you'll notice it in your head, but you're not going to get water retention or any of that. I mean, I just, I have to say, you know, I'm going to, people know I, I'm 63 years old. Mm. If I was going to get water retention from creatine, I get it right. Yeah. I mean, everything. Uh, and I'm not, I mean, in the old days, how active I really was prior to COVID and I, you know, hot yoga and I mean, just constantly really six days a week with an active rest day yeah. of, of all different kinds of heavy physical activity. Um, that was different, but today uh, I'm still taking the creatine and there's just no difference. Yeah. No difference. Nice. That's so good. Um, Susan, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It was so good to uh, be able to connect with you. And as I say this, you've got so much that you could share. Like the fact that we went through two case studies was just, you know, so helpful, I think, for people listening to kind of further understand that intersect between sports nutrition health and performance and body composition goals because that really does kind of like cover the gamut of what most people are looking for when they're thinking about their nutrition and thinking about how they can improve and what they're currently doing to get to a place where they want to be and outside of those case studies of course you've got your book the new power eating and it's had about a gazillion editions or quite a few editions <laughs> now um, and also the good mood diet which I imagine that a large part of what we discussed with that case study that information can be found within that almost little bible of how to eat to support mood um, so I'm definitely including that stuff in your, in your show notes. And if people want to work with you, you're currently, you know, you take clients, international U S states, is that the space you're in? Yes. Yeah, so from anywhere, yeah, I have worked remotely for 30 years yeah. with clients from all over the world. Right now, I, I, I'm going to admit that I, my practice has shrunk down. I'm not working with as many individual clients because I just, I have to be so much more available to them. And, you know, I sort of elected not to be quite that available, but, but I am a little bit of it. I'm still taking occasionally the client that I think would be fun to work with, honestly. I mean, nice. that's, I, you know, just to be totally blunt about it. And it's not, if I turn you away, it doesn't mean that I don't think you're fun. What it means is, is I don't think I can be available enough yeah. to meet the needs of the client. And there are some marvelous folks out there. There's here in Seattle, there is, you know, um, other uh, sports dietitians who are very good. So, so I have um, referred to some of them, but certainly feel free to reach out to me and see. Uh, I am, I, I, I'm not certain yet, but 
you know, as, as we are approaching the Olympics again, hold our fingers crossed and all those are, those are going to be some of the athletes that I've supported before that I want to make sure that I keep time for them, both the teams and the, and the athletes. So that's why I'm hedging a little bit for right now. No, it makes sense. And the best thing is, though, is that you've got these resources available so people can get the Susan experience um, when they jump (laughs) on and they buy your books. So I just think that's fabulous. Well, it's been marvelous to talk with you, Mickey. You're, You're a fabulous host. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Oh, thank you, Susan. And I've really enjoyed it, too. So, um... You enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you for your time. And um, yeah, it's been lovely to connect with you. Thank you. I hope we talk again. So that was my interview with Dr. Susan Kleiner. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. And you can find Susan at drskleiner.com or over on Instagram and Facebook at power eat and she was really responsive to any of you know the messages that she gets and the inquiries she's she gets and she just loves sharing information in addition to that you can find her books on all of the major online book distributors such as amazon book depository and other such places and next week i have a super interesting conversation with craig emirate from Maria Mind Body Health. Now Craig is the often silent half of Maria Emirate and the Keto Adapted website and both Maria and Craig work really hard to bring some super solid information in and around the keto diet and also different approaches when keto doesn't work so well. And uh, we caught up with Craig, or I caught up with Craig, just at the start of this year and him and Maria were on Maui which is where they spend a lot of their time and in part because of Craig's condition which makes the colder weather uh, super hard for him so Craig was diagnosed with Lyme disease and part of our conversation is actually in and around the diagnosis for Lyme some of the pitfalls around the diagnostic tools that are used and how he manages his Lyme on a day-to-day basis. So we delve into that, we delve into the Aikido approach and we spend a bit of time talking about protein sparing modified fasts which is something I'm fascinated with and have um, used a little bit with clients too. So it's really great to have a conversation with someone else who really understands the science behind it. So until next week team, If you enjoy the show, please head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating so more people can find out about Wikipedia and enjoy the conversations that you've been enjoying on a weekly basis. You can find me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can connect with me and book in a consultation, sign up to one of my meal plans, which covers fat loss, real food nutrition, sports nutrition, and a keto longevity plan. And that is one of the best ways that you can support the show as well. So thanks for listening and have a great week.